Hello and welcome to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. If you haven't joined us before, this is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their decision making and its subsequent consequences and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspect in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. Today's show is with Rob Carlton. Now, you may know him from his writing and performing roles as Tom Chandon or from Chandon Pictures or playing Kerry Packer in Paper Giants. He is a man who wears his heart on his sleeve and is not afraid to speak up and speak out. Indeed, my interview today covers his childhood, the roles men take on, parenting, sledging. We see the importance of imagination, of respect and of being okay with being wrong. He has an important coaching role with his kids' cricket team, offering a different perspective on that playful banter we've seen so much harm in the past few months with the Australian cricket team. They have a no sledging rule in his cricket team and the impact that has on the kids and parents is pretty awesome. This episode starts with Rob telling us about the passing of his older brother Richard from cot death many years ago when he was eight months old. The mechanism through which this story is told is a stick. It's a tender story revealing the impact Richard's passing had on his mother, his father and how it was handled according to the roles of the day. Welcome, Rob. Oh, lovely to be here, Lucy. The facade of Boys Don't Cry doesn't sit very well with you. Mm. You seem to have uh, an ability to cry very easily mm. and you you just let people know you're okay, don't worry about it, I am going to cry on this, but I'm doing all right. I'm... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because I speak a lot in public, uh, and there have been a number of situations where um, you know the emotion will overwhelm me, um, and because I know it will happen. Um, so especially you know for my wedding, for example, um, for speaking at my father's 80th birthday. Um, at my mother's 70th birthday, I knew there were things I was wanting to say. I knew when I thought about them, I mean, even now, even I just immediately, my body does that. And so I kind of made a deal with myself before I stand up there. I think, well, I I really want to say these things. Uh, I really want to express these things, specifically in a a family circumstance, lauding my mum, my dad, um, talking about why we're there for my marriage. And I didn't want for the physiological response in my body, that being crying, to stop me saying those words. So I just figured out how to do it in a way that didn't make everybody else feel really uncomfortable uh, and press on regardless. It's true, isn't it? Tears make other people feel uncomfortable, and yes, it's just simply an expression of our emotions. Yeah, they can make other people feel uncomfortable, Um, and if you're speaking publicly, it's really important that you know how an audience is feeling, Uh, because again, the reason you want to express yourself is for certain things, and the reason isn't to make an audience feel uncomfortable. It's to enlighten or engage or... Um, to make everybody in the room feel less lonely or less isolated. Um, And if the very expression of that does make them feel isolated or uncomfortable, then then you're at cross purposes. Mm -hmm. So I've always had a couple of little tactics, which is basically to say to people, I may well cry, but do not worry about me. I will get through it and you will too. (laughs) And just with a couple of little provisos, uh, people tend to relax and then hear what, what you're trying to say. Love it. Before you were born, you had a brother called Richard. Yes. Who died of cot death at eight weeks. Yeah. You shared the story of his passing and the effect it had on you at the Wheeler Centre as a, a show and tell. And it's the story of the stick of Richard life, as your sons call it, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. That's what they call it. Can you can you share with us a little about the uh, story and how uh, it was told from your father's perspective and then how, you know, from a man's point of view, it was actually a... A slightly warped picture of the actual story. Yes, I'll try and uh, give this to you as, as simply and, and, and as quickly as possible. Um, I'd written a story um, 
about uh, this stick of Richard life. Uh, just quickly, um, on the day my brother died, um, he was eight weeks old, my mother and my father and my two older sisters went down to a little beach in New Zealand where they were living at the time and they were grieving and my mum picked, and I may cry during this bit, so don't worry, I'm brave and I'll get through it. Um, and my mum and dad uh, picked up a stick, um, a piece of driftwood, and that was in our house forever growing up. And I always knew that it was there. And at some point um, during my young years, I got told as to why that stick was in our kitchen. And in fact, it was used just to stir the curries. It was a oh very my big Lord. part. Yeah, yeah, it was just a big part of our kitchen. And it was always used to stir the curries. And then I discovered that this particular stick had been picked up on the day uh, that my older brother died. So I'd written a story um, about something else completely and then um, and incorporated this stick and the death of my brother in the framing up of that. I then discovered when I shared that story with my family, um, the, the main narrative out of the family at, at that point was that um, mum had, it, it was always, my, my, as my sisters expressed it to me, she said, you know, she remembered my mum running down the garden path, yelling, he's gone, he's gone. And it, stuck in my mind, that picture of my mother grieving in a way that I couldn't begin to imagine. And then when this story came up, I spoke to my older sister and she said, yes, Rob, but that's not my major memory of the day. And I said, what, what was that? And she said, it was dad. And I said, what? I don't know of this. What, what are you talking about? And she said, my main memory of that day was dad as they put his body into the ambulance. Dad banging the roof of the ambulance and, and howling. And I had never, and when she told me that, that image came into my head and I remember where I was when she told me, I was in the, we were actually at the theater, in the foyer of the theater after, after we'd seen a show. My sister told me that and that image of my father, and I wasn't alive at the t when, when that happened, but that came into my body and my body buckled and I fell to the ground. Um, absolutely overcome with uh, desperation and sadness. And what struck me then was I had never heard that part of my father's story. I don't know whether part of me felt guilt uh, not honouring my father's grief. Um, I'd always honoured my mother's grief. And so that led to a bit of a, a discussion later on with my dad, and I didn't want to bring this up specifically with him, but I just said, you know, our oh, dad, you know, I, we spoke over the phone a little while later, and I said, Dad, I just wanted to say I never really, you know, acknowledged what you went through as a, as a grieving father and he immediately switched back to the dominant narrative which he'd always put forward which was oh Rob it was always much worse for your mum always much worse for your mum and it was that story that I was brought up with dad was at work it was easier for him to partition he had to get on with things Richard was only eight weeks old dad didn't really get to know him mum had carried him for nine months mothered him for eight weeks his perspective and story was, it was for your mum. That was the pain that we all felt. And yet, this memory of my sister obviously throws new light on that. Mm. Um, and so that made me contemplate the different roles that different people take on board during crises and I believe my father needed to tell that story to everybody that would listen and most importantly to himself so that he could wake up each day and go to work and keep things on track so that everybody else 
if it would fall apart and needed to fall apart, could fall apart, and that he could provide a foundation stone where that was safe to do. Um, and so I will never know how much of his own grief he sublimated. Um, and yet you clearly feel it so acutely in your body. You know, the, the pain that he felt. It's living in it's living in you. I mean, the way you're you're expressing and the way you're reliving each time you tell that story, mm. it's so much there, isn't it? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, and even with the years that have passed, I had that conversation with my father forty five years after Richard died. Right. And. I wanted to open up that book a little with him mm. and I guess the sands of time being what they are, for him it was straight back to it was so much worse for your mum. And to be honest with you, that was good enough for me. You know, if that's where he was at. Um, and that's how he coped. Yeah, that's how he coped. Now, uh, uh, you know, he offered, you know, an acknowledgement. He said, of course it was difficult, of course it was sad, but... Mm. And then went straight to the thing. So it's not like he was saying, oh, it was a walk in the park for me. Yeah, but there was always someone worse off. There was off. always someone worse off. Mm. Mm. The response in your body felt and clearly physically was as if it was as if you were living it yeah look that was the most bizarre thing in the world <laughs> yeah actually it was so so when i got told when my sister put that image in my mind and and it was so extreme and i literally went from standing up having a conversation with my sister in a public space to being on the ground and i kind of there was a noise that came out it was like Ugh! was this weird sound and it was so look I've got various theories most of them uh, completely not backed up by any kind of uh, science um, whether that was an inherited experience or memory um, now you know I've since done a little bit of digging um, and um, you know one of the great sort of uh, DNA scientists in the world has said no Rob that memory isn't passed down through um you know genetics but your you, you know your sort of emotional um kind of framework is or, or if, if that makes sense um yeah i'm not so sure I, i'm not so sure i'm not um, so sure either it, it, given that you know i was born 18 months after my father experienced what i would say yeah. it would have been the most uh, horrific emotional experience of his life mm -hmm. um and that i just felt this str the, the, the strongest pulse of um tragedy yeah that i i you know, I, I hadn't lost anyone very dear to me at that point, and yet I felt like I was transported to this place of utter desolation. Um, That's what I felt when you shared it with me. I felt you reliving what you couldn't possibly have been there to feel, but it was clearly channeled through you. But it seems like your father's, but also the, the whole family's grief, which would make sense if you if it had if it had had a ripple effect day to day in your family and, and your upbringing it had been spoken about but it was a joyful experience i mean your family your growing up was quite joyful and it wasn't with impending doom as you speak about in this um in your show and tell you don't you say that you didn't grow up with a house of grief no, no, and that's the most extraordinary gift my parents, my parents mm -hmm. gave. Uh, I'll touch on that in one second. I just, that notion of inherited experience or memory. Mm -hmm. uh, if listeners are sitting there going, oh, that's a bit of hocus pocus or come on, Rob, pull yourself together. Um, I, 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 I kind of think of it like this. 
I, I give this example as to try and make it real or, or at least open up the, the notion of possibility. Yes. Um, which is the little fish um, that are spawned uh, upriver, upriver in Adelaide. And so these fish um, are born and they get bigger and then they swim down the river and they swim out into the Great Australian Bight and then they swim right around the south um, of Australia between uh, the mainland Tasmania and they go up the east coast and then they swim right across the Pacific Ocean, right across the other side of the world. And then they stay there for their whole lives. It's not like seasonal. They don't go back and forth and back and forth. And then just when they're before they're going to die, they swim all the way back. How do they know how to go all the way back? They swim all the way back, all the way back, all, all the way right across the world, then back up, back up to the river, back up the river, and then spawn and have their children. Or they, I don't know what little fishies call them, mm-hmm. little fishy children. So, what's that? That suggests to me. I mean, that could be anything. The connection is it just the tides? Is it just the the? But there, there seems to be a connection between their age, their lifespan, the environment in which they live, and yet they know from some kind of genetic memory, or some kind of anyway. If you look at the world like that then I don't think it's a long bow to draw to think that an experience that would have been unlike any other my father had experienced could become part of my body in the same way a navigation across the world could become the part of a body of a little fish. Um, so anyway, I don't know, that might even sound like more hocus no, pocus, but d- to I me... <laughs> getting back to then this notion of, um, yeah, one would assume that being born 18 months after my older brother died of cot death, that um, I was brought up in an environment of terror and fear that I might go away. Um, but I wasn't. I was brought up in a world that would shine upon me if I smiled at it. Um, there was never a sense of anything about to go wrong. Um, I was, you know, after school, I was always wandering about the bushland where we grew up. I'd go out and play with my friends. We lived um, on a pit water, this beautiful part of the world, constantly playing on boats and in the water. And I mean, there was no end of possible tragedy. Uh, for a worrying parent should they choose to but at no point in my life did I ever think um, uh, any any tragedy was going to befall me and I don't know how my parents did it when the truth of it is um, me going to sleep at night as a child would have been the most terrifying thing in the world for my mum because that's all Richard did yeah he just went to sleep yeah Uh, and so how my parents managed to still present to me a world that was full of possibility and hope and not wrap me in cotton wool is a trick of the mind I honour them for and I thank them for and I will be forever in their debt for uh, and I have no idea how they managed it. You're listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. My guest today is Rob Carlton, a man who paves his way through life as an actor, a comedian, a man full of imagination and creativity. He plays the tough guy worryingly well, and yet is an incredibly sensitive man who shares his ability to connect with others with understanding and through storytelling, as you just heard. Let's hear now about his childhood. The gift his father gave him, a very well-known and respected politician of the day and yet his value of the importance of imagination of his mother's strength of character and her and and the value that she placed on making sure that you have the tough conversations you're a very sensitive man um your parents must have known that right from the get-go what did did they see your life being that of a performer and an actor or did they have different ideas or did they never impose their ideas on you no that was again one of the most extraordinary things uh they never imposed their their ideas upon me um so growing up 
to, to, to contemplate that, you, you really need to take into account the two extraordinary um, character types of my parents. Um, my father was a federal politician. So he was in Canberra for most of the time growing up. So he wasn't at home most of the time. So being brought up, two older sisters uh, and my mum. Uh, my mum is the most emotionally courageous, transparent uh, person I know. She's, she's extraordinary um, in her capacity to wear her heart on her sleeve and just get to the crux of it. If there's any kind of emotional discombobulation, um, She's straight at it. You get rid of that first. You, that's, you deal with that first and then you move on. So I was brought up in, in, a, in a home where that was my role model. It was, she just said stuff. Um, and she did it in a way that wasn't frightening. It was, this is just how we move through life. And, and in actual fact, now I look back on it, my mum was the first port of call for anybody that was going through difficult times. Uh, my mum was also somebody that people just opened up to. They always have. Um, she has an extraordinary capacity to sit down and cut to the quick of a conversation. And people will tell her things that they have not told people literally for 40 years. Um, one woman turned up one day and had a look on her face and my mum immediately knew what something was. She said, oh my God, what is it? And she said, the child I gave away 40 years ago would be 40 to 41 today. Mm. And she'd never told anybody that she'd adopted out a child she'd had as a teenager. Mm. I mean, this is what my mum does. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. that's that side of um, growing up. The other thing with regards to my dad's personality, he too was extraordinary. Um, my father was a nation shaper. Um, he was one of our leading intellectuals. Um, he was a leading thinker in parliament for the better part of two decades. Um, he was a trusted voice across both parties, Liberal and Labor. and. He really did have a huge amount to do with the direction the nation took um, on economic policies, education policies, health policies, defence policy. Um, he was a policy wonk and worked very closely, um, obviously driving the Liberal Party um, ideologies as well as working very, very closely uh, and um, well with the Labour politicians of the day, which he needed to because they were in power. Uh, and, and all of those Labour leaders speak very fondly and very highly of my dad. The reason I mention that is because his unique trick was to be able to come back into the family home and not make a ripple. Wow. Uh, he, he did not make a ripple. It wasn't like, oh, the big man from Canberra is coming home. I mean, can you imagine? He literally, in, in, in Canberra, there would be public service. I mean, he was a minister for health in the Fraser government. And she was a shadow treasurer. There was no end to his influence. And so people would always be looking to him for his ideas and his leadership to come back into the family home and be able to park that at the door. And his first port of call is what's happening here. And not to say, this is what's happening here. Yeah. Showed an extraordinary respect for the environment my mum had created and for the world that we lived in. Uh, and to summarise it, if I may, his northern star, he said to me a couple of months before he died, he said, Rob, we don't know what problems we as a species are going to have to solve. But I truly believe we will only be able to solve them if as many people in as many places are using their imagination. And so he said whenever he looked at legislation, any kind of law change, any kind of situation that where people were going to have to work under those thoughts, the last question he asked himself was, does this unlock the imagination or shut the imagination down? And if it was the latter, he would stop. If it was the former, he would press forward. And so the thing that I, I marvel at now is like knowing 
what it is to be a human being is that to be able to affect that at a national level and then not let that hubris affect your day-to-day life and then be able to come back into the home space and offer me that environment. Because growing up in my house for me was a place where your imagination could flourish. Implicit in that is a belief in humanity, a belief that most people will do right if offered the space. Um, It comes with an incredible amount of courage to let people try and fail. Um, It's an extraordinary thing. And as a parent now, knowing how difficult it is to watch your children go for something and miss without stepping in and picking them up and doing it for them. And yet, this is what my dad was able to do. And so the combination of these two personality types, which is having this extraordinarily capable, emotionally courageous mother who could stand up to my father and and have those conversations and keep him connected to a joyous day-to-day family life because, you know, I guess there was always the possibility that his brain being what it was, he could have wandered off into the, you know, how does the country evolve? And then marrying that to my father's capacity to understand what it is or the gift to be allowed to imagine is an extraordinary uh, thing. So it was always me that wanted to be an actor. They didn't push me this way or that. I was just the one that was like like doing that. Uh, I liked observing people. I liked recreating behaviour. I liked doing all of those sorts of things. Um, My mum and dad were always just, oh, well, if that's what you're up to, that's what you're up to, son. My guest today is Rob Carlton, a man who paves his way through life as an actor, a comedian, a man full of imagination and creativity. He plays a tough guy worryingly well and yet is an incredibly sensitive man who shares an ability to connect with others with understanding and through storytelling and clearly adores creating and recreating roles that embody their ca- the characters so well. Yet how do you do that and then head home to your family without it impacting somehow? You clearly picked up the sensitivity from your mother and, and that ability to, to read people and read situations um, to be able to get to the nuts of it because as a performer, that's what you're doing, isn't it? You're getting under the skin of a character and you're bringing this this person on a piece of paper unless you're covering, unless you're doing someone's life. But this character that comes from a piece of paper, you're, you're making it 3D. You're living it inside and out. Mm. So you have to be an observer, but also an empathetic person to be able to recreate those. Would you say that as an actor, there is the potential to live through those characters, things that perhaps what you don't want to deal with in your own life, you can actually channel that expression and those emotions through the characters you portray? Um, That's a possibility. It's more a question of, I mean, you know, how how much experience do you need or want in your life? I mean, um, is it therapeutic to explore vicariously your own dilemmas through the character of another is it a bit safer to do that Mm. Uh, the answer is probably yes Uh, a clearer example might be having recently started collaborating with my wife on a couple of stories Um, and this is storytelling not necessarily acting but it's been fascinating collaborating with my wife who's a novelist uh, to Explore a story with uh, the woman that you have a share a house with and a family and a life and, and children to say, okay, today we're talking about the story and we've got all this range of characters over here. This character over here might be feeling um, not uh, appreciated when they go and do that over there. Um, and then when this character says that, to this character, that makes this character feel angry and not heard and upset. And when they discuss, 
it's become a fascinating way and a really interesting way of exploring all the different things that go on between two people in a, in a much less hostile environment or a much less me versus you type thing, or this is what I'm feeling. It's, it, it's kind of like hypothetical role playing in a safe third space. Uh, as a relationship dynamic, it's, it's really interesting because it allows you to talk about all the varying possibilities without the actual direct action of I am feeling this. Because as you know, so often you don't know actually what you're feeling. You don't know actually what it is that's worrying you or upsetting you. Uh, and so often we don't say anything, we bottle it up, and then the first time we even think of talking about it is in a heated situation where you're suddenly yelling something and you think that's what you think, but you're not quite sure. And then, of course, that might have a deleterious impact on the relationship, and it's actually not what you thought. You just haven't thought it through that well. I mean, often I realise, the first time I realise what I've been thinking is utterly stupid is when it comes out of my mouth in anger. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit, I wish I could have done that in a more controlled environment. But, you know, we tend not to. Unless you're in therapy the whole time, which, and I, I, I haven't been to therapy, and I, I, you know, we don't see a couple's counter, and we have a nice enough time, so we don't need to, but... Anyway, so I guess, look, that's a roundabout way of saying um, acting, storytelling as a lifestyle, yeah, you can live vicariously through it and, and learn, learn from it. We've had um, a number of examples through the years of actors who haven't been able to leave that character mm. behind mm. and have, have ended up succumbing to the darkness of the role that they've played. Yeah, well, extraordinarily, Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. playing Hamlet, 1989, mm -hmm. uh, crawled off the stage of the National Theatre before the big speech. I was in the theatre that night. I was 18 years old overseas uh, mm -hmm. in the theatre and we were gearing up for the great speech where Hamlet um, asks the gods for the power to avenge his father's death. And instead we witnessed Daniel Day-Lewis crawling off stage. Anyway, it was an extraordinary night of the theatre. And his understudy actually came on and, and performed admirably well, apart from missing a couple of exits and entrances and things like that. So yeah, I've actually witnessed that yeah. first hand. Um, and yeah, it can be... It, it can be terrifying. It's just that bit as an actor of knowing where you're, where you, where that it's a job. Just as you you described so beautifully that your father would come home and he would, whatever his process was, whatever his routine was in coming home, when he walked through that door, he was dad. He was he was himself. Mm. He wasn't. He he didn't lord it. He just literally just as you say, it was rippleless, which is really to be learned from mm. for an actor to be able to do that is equally important but possibly more important because they're channeling a different character so when when you're when it's a dark character it's really important not to bring that into your life so that you can leave them at work yeah that's right um and it's it's you know i mean i sort of i guess one of the biggest dramatic roles i played was kerry packer a very, very different character to me. Um, now, when we were shooting that, I actually spent a lot of time down in Sydney. We live up on the central coast. Uh, and so I wasn't going home um, at night. And, um, you know, reflecting on that, I, I'm not sure how well I would have gone at, at, at letting that go. And it wasn't because of my utter commitment to the role of, you know, I've got to do this and I've got to be brilliant and I'm just going to be, you know, in this thing 24 hours. That wasn't the stumbling block. It was actually my... It, it was what I was going through at the time, which was fear. Mm. It was. It would have been very, very difficult to me to be my normal, relaxed, happy-go-lucky self because during the entire shooting of that, I was terrified I was going to look like an idiot mm. uh, when it came out. I didn't know if my performance was going to be any good. I was about, you know, in my early 40s when we shot it. Uh, a huge part of me was thinking, I'm going to get found out as a fraud. Um, and people are going to say, Rob, you can't act. Because the first time ever I'm playing a 
part that people can actually say, Rob, you're meant to look and sound like that, and you didn't. So through that, so, so I, I guess the reason I mentioned that is because it's one thing to be able to say, shake it off at the door and go and be a father to your children and a husband to your wife. But when a huge amount of your sense of self and self-esteem is being compromised through professional fear and anxiety, that's a harder thing to, to chop off. I mean, if you are feeling um, vulnerable, then that's the noise inside your head that, you know, it's hard to then just breathe out and what are the kids up to? Yeah. So I can understand if, you, you know, if men in that role of whatever it is they're doing for their job, whether it's acting or running a company or, or you know, being a removalist or being a builder or a plumber, whatever it is, yeah. if you're feeling you're under siege at work, it's not always easy to leave that at the door. I think that's a really great topic to cover next mm. is the the mask that men need to wear sometimes when they are feeling vulnerable and they are feeling fragile that it, those are not traits that are celebrated in our society for a man the man is supposed to be the provider the role model the leader you know um they're supposed to have the answers and in in couples relationships um for the old style there is a feeling that the woman will have the i wonder why i wonder how and the man will come in and say well let's do this 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 and this and let's see how that goes that they come mm. up with solutions um and yet when a man is feeling vulnerable it seems to me that he experiences all the same fears and yet he isn't allowed to express those in the way that he would choose to so as you say coming home and just switching it off that doesn't make for an intimate relationship either mm. um, you mentioned earlier about your upbringing about the transparency how do how do you feel that men now can because we do talk about it a lot more how do you feel that men now can balance that sensitivity and that transparency and that ability not to necessarily pretend that everything's okay when they walk through the door yeah, I couldn't offer a, an observation on then and now, and 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 you know how far we've come or how far we we haven't. And to me, in any given circumstance, you can say we've come so far and point to that, and then you can say, my God, we're back in the dark ages, yeah. and and point to that. Um, and it, it comes down. I mean, obviously, there is a lot more dialogue around now around mental health. Are you okay? It's okay to, um, you know, feel flat. It's important to reach out and do those sorts of things. So I think that's a great advance. Um, but at, at the heart of it is there is a preponderance still that or, or men are brought up to believe, um, rightly or wrongly, that, that they're going to worry about where all the money's coming from. Mm. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that's right or wrong or, mm. or anything like that. It just, like, most blokes feel, yeah. I've got to earn, and if I don't, I'm a failure. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, is that if you are in business, it you don't want to have to take on other people's ups and downs emotionally, right? You want to go to work, you want to get your stuff done. Come on, mate, let's push through this. Like, we've only got so much room in our bodies for um, emotional ups and downs. And so the reason I mention that is because I can well understand why a man does not want to let people know that he is feeling emotionally vulnerable. Because in his mind, that equates to work not coming in. No one wants to, it's like, yeah, 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 that's all fine. You can say it's okay for me to tell you that I'm feeling low, but I also know that you as another businessman will not make the call to me next week because I am now a liability with regards to can I get the job done. 
because I need to, you know, I need to be able to wake up, get the job done, deliver it to you so that you can take that good to market, etc., etc. If you know in the back of your mind that I'm depressed, then I believe you're going to think I might not be able to make the deadline. And there, if you want to be hard about it, me not making the deadline means your family doesn't eat. So you wouldn't employ me, mate, I might not employ me either. It's life-threatening, isn't it? That's right. And so this is where it's all very well to say you can shout to the treetops or you can tell people this or that, but I understand very, very well that um, the truth of the matter is lots of people will be worrying about their own breadline and their own, the, the amount of their own, um, you know, emotional wherewithal they have left to worry about your ups and downs, you know. Often people have got their own to worry about. So it's still, I, I can understand why men don't want to share stuff because they think, all right, well, I can share it today, but next week you might not employ me. Mm. And, and let's be honest, um, that's not a male only trait. I mean, if any human being in the workforce, that concern still exists. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a long way to go before we can learn to work with that. Yeah. And not let yeah. it influence our decisions. My guest today is Rob Carlton, a man who paves his way through life as an actor, a comedian, a man full of imagination and creativity. He plays the tough guy worryingly well and yet is an incredibly sensitive man who shares an ability to connect with others with understanding and through storytelling. So what happens when you become a parent yourself and have to role model something that you perhaps did not do quite so well when you were growing up? And what is it to be a good friend? How has it influenced how you bring your boys up now? That's right, I've got 13 year old twins. Yeah, mm-hmm. how uh, sensitive they are, how much they're able to express that sensitivity. Um, yeah, well, look, we're, uh, we're lucky given that, you know, I don't sort of have a day job. So uh, my wife doesn't have a day job. We, we run our lives slightly differently to most people. Um, so we actually do sit down every night to dinner. Um, around a tiny little table. In fact, the table's getting too small for us, but it's been too small for us for a few years now. We've got a bigger table just over there, but we all still like the little table. Yeah. Um, so there's a chance to, um, uh, you know, have kind of... I mean, the thing you know about teenage kids is that they're not going to tell you stuff when you ask them. Um, they just talk about what's on their mind, and you've just got to be there long enough to catch it. Um, so then with regards to how you bring them up uh, it's more about not donking any conversations on the head or not saying that's in I mean you know I think that the, one of the, the worst word in the world, the world for a parent oh that's inappropriate oh that's not proper to talk about right now yeah. and I, my mum's voice always rings true I remember in the middle of a very difficult family moment only not that long ago maybe eight years ago or something like that there was some sort of issue and dad, as he was getting older, would sometimes not want to talk about certain things. Um, and he said, oh, look, I just don't know. He, I remember him saying clearly one night at the table, you know, my mum was in tears. I think I might have been in tears. And I think dad said, oh, now's probably not the time to talk about it. And I just remember mum breathing in, turning on him, looking at him and, and saying, Jim, you tell me when is a good time to talk about this sort of thing? And and that's a great question everyone should ask. Yep. If it's not appropriate now, when is it appropriate? So in bringing up the boys, um, you know, got to figure out. And and, and using those emotional outbursts as markers, um, lots of little things that you learn, you know, often... If you're shouting or if, you know, I've got a basic maxim. If your emotional response is not commensurate to the situation you find yourself in, now is not the time for you to talk, right? Because something's going on inside you that's not matching up. Yeah. And you've got the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And now is the time to breathe and ask questions of the people that are frustrating you. Yes. 
It's very much a, ter- a personal thing, isn't it? If, if you as a parent are having trouble with your, your teenagers or you're not getting the conversation you want out of them, what are you offering yeah. in the mix? Yeah. Um, I really like the, the timing, though, because that, that's quite important. And I remember something that I work by, if not now, then when? Mm. And if not me, then who? Yes. Because so often we're told that's not for you to do. Well, that's not for you to say. Mm. Well, actually, we need to give power to that to those voices that question. Just as you're questioning whether or not intergenerational, or you know, there is a way of passing on trauma through the body. We we must be allowed to just raise the question. Mm. And if you don't, someone else who actually might scientifically find the answer, who might be able to prove what you're saying, mm. might say, oh, "I thought it was just me." Mm. You know, I love that. Oh, absolutely. And there you get this, you know, the wonderful cross-pollination between the sciences and the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think over the course of the last 50 years or so where there's been a sort of a downgrading and appreciation of the arts and, and what it does and a sort of a rise of the sciences. Before that, of course, in the, um, you know, before, I guess, the technological revolution or the scientific revolution, um, it was, of course, the good, the the humanities um, that were the dominant um, sort of uh, thinking areas. Mm. Um, but of course, it's much harder to quantify or qualify um, liberal arts. Um, whereas now, with the rise of science, because you can formulate everything, tabulate everything, measure everything, it's much easier to move forward inside a market economy with those numbers. And so as a result, the power of the spoken word or the language of the drama or, you know, the great novelists, um, they're, they're known as the soft, yeah. the soft subjects. Mm. Um, Everything's got to be evidence Yeah, that's right. But I think the soft subjects are called that because it's actually just a lot bloody harder. I agree. Um, I agree. It is. You have to take time. You have to connect. You have to communicate and to listen. Yeah, and there's no... It's not binary. Um, and so in a world that seems to be gathering pace and everyone's got to move forward with certainty, and this is, I think, the key, is this notion of, well, you must be certain of that. Well, you know, whoever came out of a Shakespeare play and was certain of bloody anything. I agree. He's um, fantastic at deconstructing. That's right. And so, I, I, so, you know, it's like with everything, it's only until we combine the rigour of the sciences with the wonder of the humanities um, that we'll get anything near approximating uh, a representation of the human experience. As your father so beautifully illustrated in, in encouraging imagination. Yeah. I love it. You are the coach for your son's cricket team. I am. The under-14B Kincumber Evoker Green cricket team. We have a no sledging rule uh, in our team. Um, and before the listeners think, oh, you holier than thou, uh, <laughs> pompous ponce, let me assure our humble listener that growing up I was the worst sledger. So growing up playing cricket, I sledged and sledged, you know, and I, I, you know, and to the point where even, you know, I played in a sub-districts team in my 20s. As a batsman, I would sledge bowlers. So normally the batsman sits there quietly and it's the fielders that get stuck in the batsman, mate. It did not matter where I was on the field. I would be giving stick to everybody. You were listened. trouble, weren't you, Rob, clearly? Oh, uh, well, you know, and it was, look, I always like to think it was fun and funny and, and joyous and things like that. But, you know, I did have a bowler storm off once and actually get sent off the field in his response to something that I said to him. Um, wow. So, you know, obviously everyone didn't take it with um, the grain of salt and the, uh, mm-hmm. the twinkle in the eye that I thought I was giving it. So, so... Yeah, let me assure assure you, I don't come from a place of, uh, (laughs) you know. Not whiter than white. No, certainly not. But that's very much the reason why I wanted to not have these boys sledge, because I grew up um, in a high school with a peer group where that's the dominant paradigm of young boys' um, communication with each other, sledging picking, being mean, putting people down. Um, and it's a very big part of the Australian culture. And it can be done. And here's where it gets really tricky. It can be fun. Mm-hmm. And it can be funny. Mm-hmm. And some of the biggest laughs, some of the biggest connections you can have is laughing at one another's foibles. So, And, and, in, and in a lot of ways, it can be really good because it means that people, you know, you don't get too big for your boots and all of that sort of stuff. However... 
it's easy to fall into the trap of that being the only way you communicate. So as a result, 30 years later, I still keep in touch with all my friends from, so a number of my friends from primary school, kids I was at school with when I was four and five. Um, I was one of my best mates. I still see, you know, every couple of days. We were in second class together. Um, I went to a couple of different high schools. I still keep in touch with friends from both high schools. So that first high school, we grew up in a robust environment. We're all very close friends. When we get together now, I hear those same patterns of communication playing out, that same chipping. And yet, now... We're a bit older, there's, you know, everyone's got their very issues. There's a bit of sometimes somebody's got depression or whatever. And I just notice now that that form of communication of chipping is not helpful. Mm-hmm. And what I can see now is that when I hear it, I know what it is. It's one bloke saying to another bloke, I love you, man. And in the mind, I understand why the chipping and the being mean is an expression of love and it's like we know each other so bloody well I can be mean to you and you get it and I get it but what we forget is that it's still just being mean to someone and over time and with distance because you're not in the schoolyard every day it can just be a depleting feeling And it can lead to a spiral of conversation where it's negative and nasty. And I just don't think we've got enough tools at our disposal these days that allow us to sit down with old friends and tell positive stories to one another. Um, You know, I got accused the other day by my friend, quite rightly so. He said, Rob, you always tell stories where, um, where you're the victor and, you know, and it's always goes well for you. And I thought about it and and he was right. And I thought, actually, you know, and so there's an element of that which I don't like. It's like, oh man, come on, stopping a wanker. But the flip side to that is I also tell stories where I'm the fool or I fall over. I just haven't seen that friend enough Mm. for him to get that sense. I really appreciate it. And this is the joy of having an old friend that he feels safe enough to say, hey, Rob, when you do that, I just think you're a wanker. And I go, man, I needed to hear that. Thank you. The pushback on it is, mate, if perhaps you could tell some positive stories about your experience so that you feel better day to day. There's something strange, I think, a lot in male Australian psyche where we're ashamed to tell stories where things have gone well because we don't want to seem to be big note. We don't want to, but if that's the dominant paradigm, our eyebrows go down, we furrow our brows, and we're always the victim in our our own narrative. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a pathology. And at the end of it, if you're always the loser of your own story, it's hard to wake up each day and feel bouncy and happy. Yeah, I heard that when you, if that's his impression of you, it actually triggered in him that he doesn't feel he does have that story. So you were right. It's 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 that opportunity for him to look. You know, well, what is my good story? Where how can I appreciate what I bring to life, rather than make you turn your light down? Maybe he can rise to that and turn his light up. When when I look at little children in school, in primary school, they are so bright mm. and they can shine. Mm. And if a parent or an adult in their life doesn't have that as their joy and their, and their knowingness and their livingness, then they can actually be triggered by the fact that this child is constantly happy. And it's like, can you just turn it down? Can you just be quiet? Can you just go to sleep? Whatever mm-hmm. it is, can you rest? And I think that lasts with us right up until we're, we're in adult life and, and old age is that sometimes someone else's happiness can just remind us that we have turned, we have listened to someone telling us to turn our light down and done it, mm. and then it's become our normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, and it's really, it's, it's a really tricky thing. I think a lot of people subconsciously um, view joy as a zero-sum game and that your joy means there's less in the world for me. Mm. Um, 
and whether that comes from you know the amount of time we spend at work in a uh, competitive environment where we feel your victory is my loss, your pay rise is me not earning enough. Um, in an actor's world, it's very, very clear. You got the job, I bloody didn't. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the great trick in all of that is to figure out how to gain joy out of everybody else's joy. And if you can learn how to do that, man, there's a lot of bloody joy yeah, in the world. And, and it can be really, really exciting. Um, but I do know that most people's experience doesn't seem to be that. There's a, a, sometimes a resentment at, at, at other people. And I guess that's something that, that I've always, um, I guess, strangely been brought up with or, or figured out from a young age that, no, my friend's joy is my joy too, mm. and I will jump on the back of it. Around dialogue and sledging and, and things like that, we had the most wonderful experience last year um, again because I'm noticing immediately these 12 13 year old boys turning up to and, and noticing again from growing up immediately that sense of when kids don't know each other and it's like there was one boy in particular in the team who started the year he was bigger than the others he's a nice boy but he he just started he would trip kids over or say something mean about them or pick somebody pick a fight with somebody and 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 I said to the team at the beginning, this is what we're going to do. It's, we're not, it's not only about not sledging the other team. While we're at training, we, we're not mean to each other. We don't do all those little things that we normally do in the schoolyard. I said, when you're at school, when you're with your mates, you can behave how you want. I don't care. But when you come to cricket training, this is a, a place where we find a way of being kind. Now, we can certainly ask our teammates to do better. And we can, you know, if we think they're not helping the team, then but we've got to figure out a way of asking them nicely. This boy didn't have those skills at the beginning of the year, but I could tell desperately he just wanted to be liked. Mm -hmm. Like I could see that's what he was wanting. He wanted to, a connection. Mm -hmm. He didn't know how to make a connection without hitting someone in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Getting, physically getting that yeah. connection. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just a couple of tiny little chats. And then watching this boy make those adjustments and then watching the team respond to those adjustments. And by the end of the year, he was one of the most popular kids in the team. Wow. Because it was the one place in his life, and there was you know a few things going on at home for him, where he could come to this environment, and it wasn't yappy, it wasn't nasty, it was by and large joyous. And it was, it was yeah, it was one of them, it was a really lovely outcome. Sounds like you've offered them a life lesson. So if they can, if they can see it work in that environment, who's to say that they it can't work in another environment and they can't then take that as a life skill into their lives? Yeah, well, that's the hope. I yeah. certainly learn a hell of a lot about myself, about patience and frustration and yeah. breathing through the agony of watching people. You know, yeah, I certainly know. Uh, I was wasn't getting it all right all season, no. but again, that's you know that's why we play sports, it's isn't it? School of life. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And the parents, how did they respond? Um, yeah, they, they were everyone, you know, seemed uh, seemed very sort of ha happy with the way it went. Um, again, you know, we got a rotation policy, so every, every kid got a got a go, and they, they seemed to be quite happy. Um, you know, you get differing levels of engagement from parents at uh, on Saturday sports. Um, yep. You know, and quite reasonably so. A lot of people are busy and, you know, cricket for some people is just a place where they can quickly put the kid while they go and get their busy life seen too. So that's fine too. Thank you so much, Rob, for your time. Oh, thanks, Lizzie. I found Rob and I could have carried on talking about the whys and wherefores of human behaviour for hours. I hope you got a snapshot of a man who may well have chosen a very public life but offered us a glimpse into a childhood that could have been very different had his parents handled the cot death of his older brother differently. Thank you, to Rob, for taking the time to share with us the story of Richard Stick, the story of you as an actor, um, and for chewing the cud with me for a little while on some of those other topics. I wish you well holding that stance of no, the no-sledging rule with your cricket team. I have no doubt it will lay a fantastic foundation that will have a ripple effect across all of those boys' lives. Next week, we are going to talk to Gabrielle Caplice and Annette Baker, talk about gay relationships. 
With behaviours becoming more extreme and poor mental and physical health on the increase, I suspect we really do need to go back to looking at what is respectful and loving in relationships to ensure that we're addressing it all in our interactions, regardless of our age, gender, ethnicity, denomination. The importance of making love our founding principle and expressing that through kindness, caring, decency, respect. So regardless of what is happening to you in your life or has happened, it's always important to remember that underneath that, you are amazing. And the key is to find a way to reconnect that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so you can recognize when your body's trying to tell you something's not quite right, when you can feel the anxiety, and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health, because they can help you build the tools to address what you do not yet feel equipped to manage. And I always say yet, because I know that when we actually get the right support, we can manage whatever is in front of us to deal with. Look for support in the community because it is there and it's important to remember that we need to open up to that support and learn how to trust again. And that way we don't wait for life to come to us, we take ourselves to life and we be the change we want to see in it. So take a moment to look after you, connect to the amazing people in our community, be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.